Welcome to Driverless. I'm Todd Northman, a partner in the transactional group of Tucker Ellis, as well as a founding member of the Autonomous Vehicle and Artificial Intelligence Group. I have today Roby Simons, a professor of urban affairs at Cleveland State, and Jeff Carr, a new voice for us, who is an associate here at Tucker Ellis and a co-author on a chapter in a new book that's coming out in February 2020, which Professor Simons Roby has edited called No Parking Fine, Driverless Cars, Urban Parking, and Land Use, which is published by Rutledge Press out of England. And as I say, that'll be coming out in February 2020. So please look for that. Roby and Jeff, welcome to Driverless. Thank you, Todd. Good to be here. Great. And let's just jump in. Um, the subject for today is really the ethics of driverless cars. This will be the first of a two-part series, but where I'd like to start us is, Jeff, maybe if you could explain to us the, the rationale for pursuing autonomous vehicles. There's been a lot in the press recently questioning when we're going to see them and really asking, do we need them? Yes, Todd, and absolutely. So um, according to the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, there's been estimates that about uh, over 37,000 lives are lost every year as a result of uh, car accidents. And, and these accidents are preventable. A lot of times are due to, you know, distracted relating driving deaths or drunk driving or unbelted un uh, seatbelts or speeding. But uh, the, the main rationale behind ADs is the potential to, to save lives and to make uh, the roadway safer for everyone. Right. And one of the things that we're seeing trends on is that you have a lot more cyclist deaths and pedestrian deaths and motorcyclist deaths. They're higher than they've ever been. So you have a chance to save those vulnerable road participants. And can either of you put sort of a number on this from the latest release by the National Highway Transportation Safety Board? Yeah, as of 2016, the, the annual death rate is, is over 37,461 lives on uh, U.S. roads, and that was over a 5% increase from the previous year. Um, if we look at the roads or the, the miles traveled, uh, year over year. They're increasing every year. The last uh, uh, estimate we looked at was in 2016. They increased by 2%. Uh, so as, as more people are traveling uh, every year on the roads, it seems to be, uh, and it's especially with, you know, technology these days and, and, and distracted driving, you know, using your cell phone while driving, the, the rate of deaths is increasing every year. You're really looking at about 100 people a day that are driving. And then really, books and uh, sources I've covered in my book, think that around 90% of those uh, accidents can be avoided with driverless vehicles. So huge upside. The other thing is, it's just shocking that the American public accepts these deaths. That's 37,000 deaths a year. What if, uh, you know, you had, uh, say, the World Trade Center when about 3,000 people died? People get very shocked and upset over that. This is 10 times that, that every single year. I think we need to get our, our mindset that uh, we should be looking at these deaths as, as a mass event instead of a slow trickle. 
That way we'll get more excited about it and be more motivated to make some change and guide the implementation of driverless vehicles, which can save a lot of lives. That strikes me as right. And one of the interesting sort of subparts of the statistics that Jeff is mentioning to me is that the number of pedestrian deaths has actually increased significantly. I think it's up about 40% over the last several years. So, you know, one of the articles, and I wouldn't call it a statistic, but the Detroit Free Press published a very in-depth article in the last year that looked at pedestrian deaths and attributed it to the size of vehicles and sort of the consequence of that. And so I think you're right that with autonomous vehicles, even if they're larger with their super sensing capabilities, they're going to be less vulnerable because one of the problems as vehicles get larger is it gets harder to see small things. And pedestrians relative to the vehicle size are shrinking dramatically. And it becomes very hard to see someone in a crosswalk if you're looking from as high as some of the larger vehicles. And so it's not just the, the size, which I totally agree with. It's the speed that vehicle is traveling. I've seen data that show that if a human being uh, interacts with a car in a negative way, say at 20 miles an hour, the likelihood is that person is going to get injured. If it's over 45 miles an hour, that person is unfortunately going to die. So wow. it's also speeds as well as uh, the size of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Now oh, that makes sense. And I think that's, to my mind, actually a really nice pivot to the second subject that I wanted to touch upon. And Roby, maybe I'll ask you to take the lead on this and explain what the trolley problem is. Well, the trolley problem is uh, a horrible set of choices that uh, a driver has to make uh, to try to figure out which is worse or which is horribly worse. So the context is that if you're going to program driverless vehicles, you've got soft and hard AI, artificial intelligence, and what they call the corner solutions are the unique cases that have never been seen by the computer that are not in the experience of the fleet. And what will the uh, artificial intelligence do at that point when faced with that problem in real time? So the trolley problem is a way to illustrate that. So in the trolley problem, it's a two outcome problem. You have a trolley, it's going straight down uh, its path and its brakes go out and straight ahead are 10 people. And if you don't uh, turn it away, you have a spur can turn on. If you don't turn it away, 10 people will die. And if you do turn, only two people will die. So you've got a horrible choice, but killing 10 people or two people, uh, there's a variation of this, which is called the tunnel problem where you can either kill pedestrians or yourself, but it's basically the same set of rules. So um, the idea is who decides who's going to die. So the main rule would probably be, you know, let's kill as few people as possible. So 10 versus the two. All right, you're going to swerve away from the 10 and to kill the two. It's the, the least worst situation. On the other hand, there's some ethics there, pretty serious ethics. And we've looked at the, the problem through a, a number of different lenses. The, for example, the Jewish lens, Jewish law lens, talks about the difference between murder and manslaughter or murder and passive murder or murder and non-murder. If you would do nothing, for example, if you let that trolley just go straight into those 10 people, that's not murder. You're letting the uh, situation just proceed as it normally would. On the other hand, if you uh, deliberately turn to kill those two people, that is murder. So the passivity issue is one uh, thing. Uh, there's another angle in Jewish law, which is uh, the idea that 
nobody's blood is redder than somebody else's blood, which is to say, who's going to decide which person to kill? All those people are innocent. Uh, who, who will do that? Who, no one has the right to do that. And then there's a further extensions where you look at whether it's permissible to uh, sacrifice one person for many people, whether it's during a time of war or during a time of peace. And really the, the consensus there under Jewish law is under time of war, it might be possible if you know who that person is and that person has done something wrong. But if the, say there's a siege of a city and the people that are besieging the city ask the city leaders, hey, give us one random person or we'll kill all of you. They're really not allowed to do that. So the point is in many ways, it's really not permissible to, uh, to do anything but let nature take its course and deliberately uh, change the path of that vehicle. Now, one interesting extension now is to, what if, it, what if it's you? What if you're in that vehicle and you have a chance to kill 10 people on the side or run yourself over a cliff? Would you do that? And more importantly, if the car were programmed by people, would they program the vehicle to kill the driver versus to save 10 pedestrians? So these are uh, very interesting questions. Of course, it's very, very rare this would ever occur, but this is what's at stake. And Jeffrey brought up all those death rates and uh, this is part of managing that problem. Right, no, I think that's an excellent summary, Roby. And what I really appreciate is that Jewish lens because for me, it resonates with a lot of what I see happening when I go to a website uh, hosted by MIT called The Moral Machine, and we'll put a link in the show notes to this, but where you can go through a variety of different problem sets that presents these different issues and lets you choose, hey, would you kill three old people to save four young, healthy people? Or, you know, would you prefer to and prefer obviously is in air quotes, but if the autonomous vehicle is being programmed, how much weight should it give to the fact that the potential victim of an accident has broken the law? All these different issues. And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on the trolley problem is when you bring this up to people in the industry, they get pretty frustrated because it seems abstract to them. You hear a lot of people sort of wave, well, you see them wave their hands and say, oh, that'll never happen. We're not, we're not able to do that. This is a false problem, including some pretty prominent commentators. And it's strange to me because that may be true now, although obviously the autonomous vehicles had better be counting and making these choices, even at this point. But when you drill down into it and start to identify the different people, would you prioritize, say, and this gets to your point about no one's blood is redder than the other, Roby, but would you prioritize saving the president of France over someone who is an illegal alien in France and what that would be ethical? So I think there are a lot of interesting issues embedded in this that are going to need to be confronted. And I'd really commend the Moral Machine website to listeners to just go and play with it because it, it really helps understand what programmers are going to be facing. It's a fascinating uh, website. I've been on this several times. It's amazing. Uh, one thing that, the two things of interest. One is the idea that people are outside the crosswalk are actually breaking the law, if that would make them more likely to be killed if all else equal. There's a Jewish concept called the rodef. It means the pursuer. And uh, if you have a pursuer, then uh, the person that's being pursued is allowed to kill that person. 
And a matter of fact, a bystander can kill a, a pursuer. The question is, would somebody outside the crosswalk be considered a pursuer? And some opinions might say that they would be, since they're not breaking the law and they're bringing uh, destruction on themselves in a sense. The other thing, uh, obviously, if you look at the moral machine, they also have uh, fat people, thin people, rich people, poor people, highly educated people, old and young, women and men. They have animals, too. So I think almost all people would prefer to, you know, uh, save one person over 10 animals. But maybe you're doing this and programming this in India where they have a reverence for cows. How would they program that in that country? You could see it be very different. And, and also countries in, uh, in the Far East, for example, Japan and China, they really value people following the laws. It would be a very different program than it would be in the United States where we're a little more jaywalkerish. Right. And I was just going to mention that there is a fascinating article that I believe it was Nature published, also based on, I don't know if it was specifically the moral machine that they used, but a very similar sort of preferences. And they looked at it cross-culturally. And I think you actually have a really nice graphic in the book that you've got coming out, Roby, that highlights the difference in cultures and how in Asia, different Asian countries prioritize old people at the expense of younger people. And to turn back to the challenge that presents for autonomous vehicles, I just wonder, and Jeff, I'll direct this at you, is this something that the individual autonomous vehicle programmers are going to need to sensitize their programming for geographic regions, whether it be by GPS and sort of track that or just have the country of purchase be the default. How would you think of that, Jeff? I, I think you would you'd absolutely have to, to make it sensitive to, to where people are from. Um, and this kind of dovetails into a topic we're gonna to talk about soon, I think in the, the, the federal legislation or, or lack thereof, but uh, the, the idea uh, that you can create some uniform standard. I don't, I don't think it's, it's going to work in this space, particularly because uh, cross-culturally, there's just so many different considerations that you have to consider, whether it be uh, in the Jewish culture or, or in a different uh, area of the world. So it, it seems to me like the only way to, to really address all the concerns and, and really make sure people are safe, but also um, making what, what, you know, and everybody has a different belief on what the moral decision may be. Uh, but, but to make sure everything's addressed, it seems like it'll, it'll definitely have to be specific, in, in my opinion, geographic specific. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the ethics that are geographic specific, it's what, how people drive. For example, if you've been in New York City, you know that if you stop at a yellow light, you're going to get rear-ended. I mean, the lights in New York go from, you know, red and a half to green and a half. If you stop on the dime there, you're, you'll be rear-ended. But in Pittsburgh, for example, they have what's called a Pittsburgh left where if you've got two people that are facing each other across an intersection and there's no turn arrow and somebody's going to make a left, you kind of expect that person to jerk over there really quickly and cut you off and make that left. And that's built in. So you've got to have uh, those kinds of behavior rules too. And, you know, it's more, more than just theoretical. It's fine to talk about, you know, how it is in Japan. Well, that's a, it's an island. But if you, can, you take the countries of the Netherlands and Germany, which are proximate to each other, share a border, both in the EU, they may have very different behaviors in terms of liberal and conservative and how they, how they feel about rule following, for example. So what are you going to do with the border? You're going to reprogram the German version of this vehicle versus the Dutch version? They show a border. It's only you. What are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. 
No, I like the way you framed that because that's right. And I guess what I would interject in this is where you've got a neural network that is using experience to train, that's already going to start to tip the balance there in a way that is not going to be transparent to either the programmer or certainly the operator or owner of the vehicle here. So it's going to be a very subtle problem to address, but I, I would suggest that's going to have a localizing effect, but it's going to be incumbent on autonomous vehicle developers to build that capability into the fleet learning. And I think we touched on this on our last podcast, Roby, one of the, the real benefits here is the fleet learning capability where that's part of the safety case to return to the first sort of topic we touched on is the driver that is the autonomous vehicle, the artificial intelligence is going to have so much more experience than any one individual driver. Just in the last month, uh, the, the Google project by Waymo announced that they had reached 20 billion miles driven. To put that in context relative to a human driver, that's just an astronomical amount of experience and that's generalized across the fleet. So. Again, to return to the safety case, we're talking about something that's going to have a lot more experience and is going to draw on that experience for how it operates, which presents really interesting problems, I'd suggest. Right. And whether that fleet learning is shared is another ethical problem because it might be able to uh, save more lives if small, weak fleets that maybe only have half a, mil half a billion miles instead of 20 billion miles. Could, could they take advantage of the fleet learning of, of the, the greater Borg, of the greater community? Uh, it might hurt the market share of that larger firm, but it would probably save some lives. So is the government going to force those kinds of relationships? wonder what the government role's, role is in all this. Well, and let me just pick up on that thread of government role and ask you, Roby, to forecast something we're going to dive into in the second part of this in more depth. But if you could give us kind of high level how you think about the impact of autonomous vehicles on the loss of jobs, particularly here in the United States. Well, just at a very high level, uh, we've looked at this and I've made some forecasts of job loss by sector, but we looked at it in three basic tranches. The primary com companies and businesses that would be directly affected by driverless vehicles and the secondary ones which serve those primary ones and then the tertiary ones which do with the rebound. So. The primary sector would be all the drivers, truck drivers, car drivers, taxi drivers, uh, and also the auto dealers and auto leasing companies. All those firms would certainly be affected by the fact that probably you would not have a lot of, drive, of, of private vehicles anymore. You would have vehicles created, but they'd be driven by uh, driverless vehicle uh, software, and they'd probably be owned by fleets rather than individuals. Um, having said that, the secondary group would be the entities that and deal with traffic deaths and insurance. For example, uh, organ donors, cemeteries, that would, fewer dead people, fewer people uh, you know, donating organs. Uh, insurance carriers like uh, the companies that deal with car insurance and all the claims and the body shops. And then parking garages, there probably would be less demand for those because the fleet vehicles would have different patterns. And finally, the police, no lovely reader meter made, no uh, ticketing, no following people around maybe even less uh, racial profiling of drivers. So it'll be a different world for that secondary group. And then finally, you've got the tertiary group 
You've got the oil and gas industry. You've got the power generating industry, the research and development and geographic information systems. And then all the training folks at junior college and universities would have to train these uh, people that lost their jobs. And, and of course, you've got the software tech. So the primary group generally will all go down. The secondary group mostly go down, but not as much. And the tertiary group probably would go up. Some of those would actually take advantage of the, uh, the changing um, trends and uh, there might be even be more employment. But there are winners and losers. Right. Uh, Jeff, you want to jump in with any observations on job loss? I think you helped work on some of this section. I think uh, part of the more interesting uh, part of the conversation, which maybe we'll, we'll as you said, discuss more in uh, part two, is, is the amount of uh, individuals that will be affected once uh, these uh, this technology is fully implemented on the road. I mean, we've had kind of uh, side conversations about, you know, what's going to happen with, with maybe the barbershop traditionally. If, if all this time is freed up um, to where you could be either, you know, working on your your way to work, or maybe you could potentially get a haircut on the way to work. So it could, you know, while some traditional industries, maybe like the corner store of, uh, or the brick and mortar version of a, of a barber shop may be eliminated. It might transfer to a whole new area of employment where there's, you know, literally mobile barber shops that'll take you to work. So I, I think it'll be interesting to, to really dig into all the, the, the new areas of uh, not only uh, job loss, but more job creation and, and the ways that will, uh, We'll kind of uh, learn how to how to make the new passenger economy work for us. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Roby, another thing I wanted to hear your thoughts on are the challenges to privacy that autonomous vehicles are going to raise. Well, Jeff just touched on it about the barbershop on wheels. I mean, you're going to have marketing on wheels. You know, one of the main things that makes driverless vehicle attractive is going to be cheaper probably about uh, 20 cents to 40 cents a mile if you're driving with, around with other people, maybe 60 cents a mile if you're by yourself compared to $1.20 of your personal car, fully amortizing all the costs and time and so forth, and compared to about two fifty for uh, driverless services. So in order to be cheap, one of the things uh, that you're going to probably see is marketing in the vehicle. It's kind of like uh, those uh, popular social media uh, companies where you're, you are the service, you are the product, your data, your preferences. So I think there's going to be implicit uh, relationship that you're going to let them market to you when you're a passenger in these vehicles. And you may find that uh, if the vehicle, uh, you know, if it's known to the database that you're going to get married, you might get a prompt for a bridal shop. Or if you love sushi, then, you know, the screen will pop up that there's a sushi bar just around the corner. Or if you haven't uh, eaten in four hours, they're going to know that, uh, you know, here's a coffee shop coming up. So they'll be marketing to you in the vehicle. They'll know all your data. And uh, that's you sort of the product. But it'll help keep the costs down. And the thing, if you opt out of that, maybe it's going to cost you another 10 cents a mile or 15 cents a mile, maybe double the cost even to maintain privacy. So I think probably, you know, opt, you have to opt out of uh, giving them all your data. But that'll be part of the, uh, the reason. The, the vehicles will really be designed around the passengers, not around the drivers anymore and trying to keep the cost down. And Jeff, did you have any thoughts on privacy? I, I just think it's gonna be interesting um, to see how, uh, there, there's, there hasn't been uh, too much, uh, you know, too many articles that I've seen 
on how it's going to work in practice. Uh, it's obviously a concern, uh, particularly, I don't know if uh, that's something you want to get in today, but, you know, the ability maybe of um, a, a car to be, uh, to, to be hacked and, and, you know, what, what kind of concerns does that create to, um, you know, the, the consumers on the road, if, if, if one car goes haywire, uh, how could that affect, you know, the other uh, uh, vehicles on the road because of, uh, you know, a, a potential for a hack or, or, or something of that nature. But um, I think that's something that, that, that'll be interesting to, to figure out in the future. Right. And we touched on this in one of our very first podcast episodes um, in 2018, I think it was November 2018, with Professor Brian Choi, who's a professor of law at the Ohio State University School of Law. And from his perspective, that cyber attack is actually the high point of potential liability to programmers, because it represents, if I understood Professor Choi's argument correctly, it really represents the point at which you can criticize the AV programmer and say that is an error. I mean, it's just absolutely a failure for the system to operate as it's intended, because if you're the developer, you can't rebut that and say, well, no, we intended for it to be hacked. You really have a very high barrier. And you see this with credit card hackers, that sort of thing. You've got real exposure there. So I think you're right, Jeff, that that is a concern for autonomous vehicle marketers. Well, it's not, it's not just, I totally agree. It's not just the uh, company though, although they're obviously uh, could be quite liable, but it could also be the government or whoever is in charge of the uh, cyber infrastructure. Might be other reasons that, it, for example, the, the electricity grid must have, might've gone down or something like that it might cause uh, a lack of service as opposed to just a hack. So there's other scenarios I could think of where, government or whoever directly or indirectly blessed the uh, cyber infrastructure uh, could also be partly liable. The other thing I'd be more concerned about is instead of a single car being hacked, and that's been documented a couple of times where folks have driven up next to a vehicle and turned on the radio or got it to stop or something. Those are the kind of bugs that you kind of like to see those things. So it happens over and over and it happens to one vehicle, then the whole fleet learns how to avoid that problem next time. But the question is what if the whole, grid goes down or what if the whole system gets hacked and at what point would that happen that that could really delay the implementation of driverless vehicles that becomes a systematic problem if it's not dealt with properly i think that's right and before we get out of here today though i wanted to ask both of you sort of as a forecast for the next episode and maybe you start us off jeff what is one thing in particular you're looking forward to touching on in the second half of this podcast um, I, I think it's going to be uh, it'd be really interesting for us to discuss the the regulatory framework here, um, or or lack thereof. Some might argue that uh, you know, of course, NHTSA is the agency that's responsible for at the federal level, you know, regulating the safety uh, of motor vehicles on the road. But it's really been a, a, a pathwork of uh, state legislation that's kind of led the way here and, and has made it possible for. Um, the different companies to do their testing. So it, it's, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, way forward and, and probably a, a good part of a, a good thing for us to discuss in the, the next episode. Yeah, I agree that it's an important subject. I'm not sure I'd say fascinating, but <laughs> kudos <laughs> to you, Jeff. Spoken like a lawyer. 
Roby, how about you? What do you want to talk about next time? I got two items. One, I'd like to talk to Joel down a little bit on the job loss. I got some thoughts about which sectors would lose and how quickly and under what scenarios and how deeply that loss might occur. And the other thing would be who's liable if there's a wreck? You know, is it the uh, company, the passenger, the pedestrian? Is it the government? Under what circumstances would there be shared liability in the event of an accident? Yeah, those are both excellent subjects. I'll look forward to digging into those. So with that, thanks to both of you for your time today. And we'll pick this back up soon. So thanks again. Appreciate it. And talk to you soon. Okay. May your driverless future be mobile.